All of us here at WPKN wish you a very happy, safe, forward-thinking 2021. It has finally arrived with all its possibility, mystery, and glory. So happy, happy new year to you wherever you are, whatever you're up to. We're glad you can chill out here for a bit today on WPKN 89.5 FM coming straight at you from Bridgeport, Connecticut. I'm Bonnie Likes, here with engineer Sean Bigler, and this is What's Happening New Haven. Our first guest this hour is quite intriguing. Matthew Kenny is a practicing traditional astrologer, a trained philosopher, and translator of ancient Greek and Sanskrit. He's a dedicated practitioner of astrological magic meditation, hatha yoga, and Taoist circle walking. He's also an academic and scholar. He utilizes intellectual rigor to restore the worldview and astrological prowess of the ancient world and apply it to the modern day. And he uses this integrated knowledge combined with applied techniques to guide his clients on their paths toward wholeness and spiritual flourishing. And what's really exciting, among many other things we'll talk about with Matthew, he's going to share the astrological snapshot for the year ahead. Matthew Kenny, thanks so much for joining us as we open up the new year 2021. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Bonnie. Thank you so much for having me on. Our pleasure. So, Matthew, before we launch into your background and what 2021 may have in store for us, can you give us a layman's overview of how the science of astrology is essentially working in our everyday lives? Oh, yeah. That's a that is a very very deep topic. Um, really, there's you've, we've got the signs and we've got the planets. We've got the houses and the aspects. There's so many different pieces and factors that all kind of come together to end up with astrology affecting our lives. But really, it starts with the planets. The planets are the main actors in astrology, and they're the ones that bring down the energy. They're the ones that, as an astrologer, I look at first to see what kinds of significations are going to be coming up in some of my clients' lives, or if I'm trying to do something like figure out what a year is going to look like, I, I, I look immediately to the planets as well. And the signs kind of come in to color the planets. So for instance, the sun in Sagittarius is going to behave a lot differently than the sun in Capricorn. Uh, but you can say the same thing, of course, for Mercury or Jupiter, or, or uh, even some of the asteroids or some of the lots uh, that we use as well. And then um, there's also uh, the signs have some different technical roles that they play when I'm using certain techniques like um, looking at something called house rulership or zodiacal releasing, some of the more technical stuff that perhaps other astrologers or people who are astrologically conversant will know what I'm talking about. Yes, and place uh, place of birth and time of birth are absolutely critical. That's the initial springboard, isn't it? That's right. It's the um, place of birth and the time of birth that determine the uh, the rising sign or the ascendant, and you know, for thousands of years it was this rising sign or this ascendant sign that was the most important sign in somebody's chart. It determined what we would call the ascendant ruler or a planet that an individual has a special connection to. And uh, if you don't know, this rising sign is the sign that was coming up over the eastern horizon when you were born. But to be able to determine that, we need to know, you know, where you were born and, and when you were born. 
Um, so it's really very critical to have both time and place of birth in addition to the date. Yes. There's, um, yeah, different, you can do something called rectification if you don't have the time of your birth. Ah. Yeah. So if you don't have the time, you can kind of basically work backwards from different major pivotal events in your life and oh. see what, um, because uh, say if someone has Capricorn rising, their whole chart is going to look completely different than someone who was born uh, maybe uh, an hour or so later and has Aquarius rising. And you can get a sense for what each of those lives will look like through some of the different timing techniques. And you just kind of ask someone questions and you sort of work backwards and figure out which one fits their life more. And you can say, uh, you're probably born around... Um, you know, 5 p.m. as opposed to 7 p.m. And some people get very good at this and they can even predict up to like five minutes. And it's very interesting. Um, some people will even, they, they won't look at somebody's time of birth. They'll try and like predict when they were born and then see how close they get. Wow, this is so like a often... reverse engineering, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, yeah. And I think especially for people where you do know the time of birth and then you kind of, you almost like try and guess your way to it is really speaks to the power of astrology. Well, that, that is really good news. I've always wondered yeah. how people that don't know that information can can uh, get a great chart going. So, Matthew, mm -hmm. you have a rich background actually beginning as an academic and a philosopher that gave way to mysticism and, and interest in the science of astrology. And it seems like it was a mm -hmm. bit of a sinuous journey in the beginning for you. How did all this start? Yeah, so I had, um, I kind of walked a, a double life for a couple of years. Uh, you know, I had interests in meditation and spirituality going going you know, back even into my formative years, but I, I kind of had that on the side or sort of on the back burner while I, I went to college to major in philosophy. And, you know, I was really focused on doing academic philosophy, specifically analytical philosophy, if you're familiar. And um, I think that my interest in philosophy was kind of happened in tandem with my interest in spirituality, uh, you know, asking deep questions, uh, trying to find absolute truths of reality, understand the world for what it really is, and this kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, wow. And I ended, but I, I really ended up getting bogged down in the, um, like the the sort of overly left brain side of things for uh, a while, mm -hmm. and I kind of um, uh, I lost connection to the um, to the more spiritual side of things for a little bit until you know one day things kind of shifted and I started to awaken again, and uh, I dove right into meditation and spirituality. And so, Matthew, I, what are your influences? Um, what, what what teachings, perhaps those from our very ancient past, uh, that have mm -hmm. particularly influenced you? Yeah, so, the, you know, the is, I'm especially influenced by Plato. Uh, mm. And it was really discovering Plato in a new way that kind of awakened me back up to spirituality. I started to realize that Plato was not just an old fuddy-duddy uh, philosopher, but was actually a mystic. And, you know, I started putting together some of the things that he was talking about. He, he talks about things like enlightenment and connecting with the soul. He even devotes, devotes half a book of the Republic to reincarnation. 
And he talks about the signs of the Zodiac as well. And he says that the signs of the Zodiac are either gods or they were made by gods. He's also our only source for the story of Atlantis. So there's a lot of, he's talking about a lot of like deeply mystical things. And um, a lot of people in the classical astrological scene of which I'm a part really think that astrology developed from people who were studying in the platonic academy or students of plato Hmm. and you'll see if you get really deep into the some of the philosophy behind astrology just how platonic a lot of the approach and a lot of the worldview actually is and this was a really profound experience for me that like kind of seeing plato in this new way and having it wake me up in in this sense and he was um that as I still consider him to be like one of my primary influences from the classical world, um, by far. Yes, what a, what an what a interesting, fascinating source, and one wonders what he would say today if he was walking around in the marketplace <laughs> of the world. <laughs> yeah, so, I, I, yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> so, Matthew, um, what getting getting back to the modern world now? What types of events, mm-hmm. workshops, and sessions do you facilitate? How do you interact and ultimately serve uh, your clients yeah so yeah it's i basically i have two sort of branches of outreach and the first is the workshops and the teaching events seminars that i run and then the second is my client practice uh when it comes to you know workshops i teach a lot of introductory courses and classes I I like thinking of myself as something of a a gatekeeper to classical astrology. Mm. You know, I have some people coming to me who know nothing about astrology. They're just getting into it for the very, very first time. Right. And it's a really, really enjoyable experience for me to awaken people and try and um, give them the same excitement that I have for the practice and show them what the planets and the signs and the houses and all that are really all about and almost like getting to know them like in a more of a spiritual kind of way. And I also have people who have studied other kinds of astrology, whether it's you know, Vedic Indian astrology or modern astrology, but are interested in learning something else or getting acquainted with a different branch. And it's, you know, I also thoroughly enjoy getting people who have studied astrology and are familiar with some of the technical apparatus and starting to have them see things in a little bit of a different way and help them to get a little bit more well-rounded. And even if they do like something completely different than what I do, like a sort of humanistic psychological approach, I often see them taking some of the techniques that I use and applying it to their own practice. And that's always really satisfying. Yes. How wonderful. And would you say that for someone just learning astrology and trying to perhaps uh, start this discipline in their own life is it mm-hmm. is it difficult I, I sort of picture somebody with a you know an astrologer sitting down with a protractor and a compass <laughs> is it <laughs> is it tough uh, well we we fortunately we've been able to ditch the protractors and compasses uh, <laughs> like a couple of decades ago uh, but even like relatively speaking not that long ago considering that astrology is thousands of years old uh, it there is a learning curve to astrology. It, there's a lot of moving parts and there are a lot of, you know, techniques and different approaches that need to be understood before you can actually sit down to start reading a chart. And then, you know, even after you kind of understand how to use techniques and you have a general sense of what the planets are about and what the signs are about, 
there's this sort of synthetic faculty that has to come in as you start to sit in front of a chart and put it all together. So you might know that what Jupiter is all about in terms of leadership and law and also, you know, financial abundance and sort of spiritual wisdom and judges and priests and this kind of thing. And then you see Jupiter in the ninth house in someone's chart. And, you know, the ninth house has something to do with foreign travel and uh, pilgrimages and also higher education, and higher learning. But it, it takes some practice to be able to put those two together and see how that's actually going to show up concretely in someone's life. And then throwing in aspects and signs and this kind of thing. Oh it, takes some, it takes some yeah. practice. Yeah, there is a, there is a learning curve. But, um, you know, the uh, it, there there's an, an, this sort of old Greek adage, basically, the heart is the good. And that it, it takes, um, if something takes time and effort to master, then you know it's actually worth mastering. And like anything with it, just practice. Um, yes, yes, again, for sure. Again and again, yeah. That sounds like, yeah, a great overview and feedback. I've always wondered uh, just, you know, how it would be for somebody sticking their toe in the water. But now, Matthew, mm. it would be wonderful to hear. What do mm. you see astrologically for the year ahead? Um 2020 apparently had aspects that hadn't occurred for hundreds of years. So do you see another right. surprising ride ahead for all of us? Yeah. So there's, um, I, I'll start off just by saying right off the bat that there's, I think that 2021 is going to be a lot better and a lot easier. than. Oh, good. Uh, yeah. And um, I have a lot, there's a lot of um, different techniques that I've been looking at and some different, you know, particular dates and periods of the year that I think will be, you know, particularly noticeable that I can, can go through. Uh, right off the bat, you're absolutely right that the, uh, you know, we are going through a triplicity shift right now. And um, that in, yeah, that has to do with the conjunctions of Jupiter and Saturn and Jupiter and Saturn go, they, have a conjunction they become conjoined in the sky about every 20 years and for a period of approximately 240 years this will all happen in one element of mm. the signs mm. so for 240 years it will happen in the water signs so pisces cancer and scorpio and then 240 years go by and then it it shifts and it shifts into in this that case into the fire signs and now we're seeing a triplicity shift from Earth signs, where we have been in the last 240 years, into uh, air signs, which makes sense. As we've seen, um, the last 240 years, have been, there's been a lot of um, technological revolution when it comes to, like, you know, we think of the Industrial Revolution and mining and um even how we how we build our buildings, there's been lots of physical transformation, like technological advances and this kind of thing in the mm -hmm. last 200 years. Mm -hmm. Now we're switching to air, and we had our oh. first conjunction in air signs um, for like a brief period in 1980, in around which you know computers started really taking off, and uh, even like digital music and radio as well started getting like a lot more traction around 19 around this time, and um, so this is this is new and we won't see this happening in our lifetime some people go their entire lives without seeing a triplicity show wow that so is new it's, it's special mm. and uh, there's another configuration that happened this year or in 2020 that 
was <laughs> I think a lot of the reason why it was so hard yeah. and so bad. And this was the uh, not just the conjunction or the uh, the the close the, the sort of closing in of Jupiter and Saturn in the sign of Capricorn, but also Pluto being there. And Pluto is, if you don't know, is is um, associated with sort of death and loss and endings and uh, deep spiritual transformation, uh-huh. which always requires a lot of pain to to really and a dark a dark night of the soul. Yes, as it were. Right, yeah. right. And the last time this happened was in 1894 BC. Goodness, very very long time ago. Wow. And it was also the same year that the city of Babylon was founded. That was a one of the few things like records that we have from from that year. So mm-hmm. if there's some small little hamlet that has been founded, maybe we could expect to uh, 150 years from now to be a big deal. Maybe I don't know. We'll have to see. But wow. um, wow. yeah, there's a. I think I, what I'd like to do is maybe explain a little bit of just why 2020 was so difficult, just okay. for contrast. So then I can share a little bit about what we uh what's changing so we know that things are going to get a little bit better How great does that sound? sounds good excellent so a lot of it the culprit here for why 2020 was so tricky comes down to the planet jupiter now jupiter is naturally a really really positive benefic planet in people's charts it can sh- indicate uh, you know, financial abundance, financial prosperity, also spiritual wealth and wisdom and insight. People with strong Jupiters can be really, really happy. He's considered, yeah, to be a great planet, uh, all in all. And in the mundane sense, or when we're talking about doing mundane astrology, which is to, like sort of forecasting for a year ahead, mm-hmm. then Jupiter rules... Um, like the law and the, also we'll notice like the public health of the people. Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about how the, uh, the population of the city is going to be doing or the population of the nation is going to be doing. We looked at what Jupiter is going to be doing that year. And Jupiter this year was in the sign of Capricorn and Jupiter does not like to be in the sign of Capricorn at all. Oh. We call this his, <laughs> yeah, we call this his fall. And if you know anything about the Capricorns in your life and how... Uh, I happen to be a you know, Capricorn. <laughs> there you go. I'm a Capricorn as well. So, you know, sort of like world weariness, hard work, kind of, you know, pushing forward. There's this natural... Um, they, they, the, the energy of Capricorn and the energy of Jupiter kind of work at cross purposes. Uh, mm-hmm. Jupiter kind of likes people to feel good about themselves. And then the Capricorn is a little bit more... Judgy. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's a little, it's it's a heavier energy. So when Jupiter is in the sign of Capricorn, he doesn't do very well, and uh-huh. that natural fire of happiness and joy and and health and good vitality gets, uh, it's almost like like the the earth, like the earth or the like you throw too much earth on a fire or something, like mm-hmm. Capricornian earth, and it, and it it smolders and it doesn't do as well. Oh, that's sad. See, I have a Sag moon, so I think that kind of. Uh alleviate some of that in my life but not to talk ah, about me yeah <laughs> yeah so that and yeah the sagittarius is ruled by jupiter it's a very external expanded um there's an emotional buoyancy to the sag moon that that comes from some of the blessings of jupiter um and uh so with jupiter here this happens about once every 12 years and it's not generally great but it's not horrible you know we don't see things happening this intensely what made this one so unique is the fact that 
Saturn was here as well. And Saturn rules the sign of Capricorn. So Jupiter is, uh, you know, in Saturn's house and has to deal with Saturn as well. And that's not super great for him. Saturn has a very, very cold, contracting um, he, uh, energy. Saturn was classically considered to be the Lord of Death, um, associated with the Death card in the Tarot. And you oftentimes see when Saturn is transiting somebody's chart or Saturn becomes what we call a Time Lord, then uh, they, they, the, the, the individual will have a lot of loss in their life. They'll, oh. they'll mm-hmm. find doors closing. They'll maybe like they lose their job, like a marriage falls apart, like this kind of thing. It Saturn brings endings. Yes. And so again, Jupiter does not really like to be around Saturn uh, mm-hmm. for, for mm-hmm. this reason. They, 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 Saturn and Jupiter also work at cross purposes. So we have Jupiter in his fall already in Saturn's house. And then Saturn is also in the house too. Um, Saturn's there. Uh, this is like using like some kind of metaphor from pop astrology or pop uh, pop culture. Uh, like I was just thinking of this as Luke Skywalker in episode six without his lightsaber in the throne room of the emperor. This is kind of um, having to deal with sort of the big bad guy of the astrological chart and not having any power on your own. Mm. And that's that's what 2020 was. I see. And this really starts to make sense when we think of the fact that Jupiter is associated with public health. Yes. Um, yeah. Wow. Where like here we clearly had pandemics and uh, had a pandemic on our hands, and clearly a lot of people getting sick, um, a lot of fear as well. Saturn brings a lot of fear, and Saturn is already naturally associated with epidemics, and so when Saturn forms difficult aspects to planets in mundane astrology which again mundane astrology is what we're doing now or we're looking at on big picture stuff for a whole year and looking at a country as opposed to looking at individuals that when saturn is doing is really really prominent you can see a lot of sickness a lot of illness coming about which we which we clearly did so and then to, to kind of top it all off um, the third issue was, like I said, Pluto being here. So Jupiter having to not just only contend with one Lord of Death, Saturn, but also two of them, Saturn and Pluto at the exact same time. And we, we've seen a lot of death, we, an um, extreme amount of death. And <laughs> the fortunate thing is that that's all coming to an end. Um, and that's especially with this uh, Jupiter-Saturn conjunction that's coming up on the solstice on December 21st of this year, that that is going to be happening in the sign of Aquarius, not in the sign of Capricorn. So Jupiter will still be conjoined Saturn, but he won't be conjoined Pluto anymore, and he also won't be in his fall. Jupiter has a, a better time in the sign of Aquarius than he does in Capricorn, just in virtue of not being in his fall. He doesn't have any rulership here. Like, okay, it's not Sagittarius or Pisces. But he does have some kind of authority and some kind of like help to enact his significations. Saturn himself is also slightly happier in the sign of Aquarius than in Capricorn. Saturn rules Capricorn and Aquarius, and for some complicated reasons, Saturn slightly prefers to be in the sign of Aquarius to, to, to Capricorn. So Saturn is also a little bit more benefic here, mm-hmm. about as benefic as he can be. Mm-hmm. in a chart yeah <laughs> i see yeah. wow so there's yeah so that's all um 
really good stuff. I and for getting into like some real predictive stuff and putting some timing to it. And um, you know, we'll have to see how things go, of course. But it is interesting as I was doing some of my research, I noticed that whenever Jupiter and Saturn throughout twenty twenty were really close, that was when the death rate started to go up the most. Oh. And there was the most fear uh, around the virus as well. And for for instance, um, Jupiter and Saturn got to, you know, their closest or for the first time, it got as close as they could back at um, on March 20 or March, March 22nd of 2020. And then on March 23rd, Saturn left Capricorn for a little bit and went to Aquarius. And it was around that time that, you know, when they had gotten their closest before Saturn left and went into Aquarius, that we had our first lockdown in the United States. So, Matthew, um, we only have a couple of minutes left, unfortunately. This is so fascinating. Oh. Um, can you kind of, if I know it's it's terrible to ask because it's such a wonderfully, um, you know, meticulous science, but is there a way that you could give us sort of the highlight reel for 2021 before we wrap things up? Yeah, sure. So, so highlights, so yeah, a lot of back, background work. So highlights now, the um, Jupiter and Saturn, we've been building up to this this entire time. Jupiter and Saturn are going to be conjoined on December 21st of 2020. And then after that, they separate. And as they separate, you'll start to see, I do think you'll start to see the death toll and the intensity around coronavirus going down. Great. It's, yeah. And it's also around this time that uh, we, there's another kind of factor here with Mars. And Mars brings a lot of the panic. It was also during that time over the first lockdown that Mars was conjoined Jupiter and Saturn too. And now Mars is coming into square with Jupiter and Saturn. And that brings in uh, just like a lot of fear. Mars is a very, very fiery planet. And he's making a hard aspect right now. First, the conjunction now up coming up is the square. We see more fear. We see more panic coming out as well. Um, but that will separate in late January. So, you know, I think we'll start to see the, 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 the death toll going, starting to decrease a little bit before that. And then uh, around late January, some of the fear and the panic around the coronavirus will start to subside as well. Fantastic. And by, I think early February, I really do think that things are going to start to dissipate and things will start to, to, to move on and life will begin to move on. That sounds and, like a wonderful note to end on. I'm so sorry <laughs> that we have, to, we have to sort of cut this short. But in lieu of that, um, please tell us where listeners could get in touch with you so that they can learn more. Yeah, yeah. So my website is ancientastrology.org. Um, yeah, ancientastrology.org. And I offer readings and I keep people up to date with any workshops or online webinars that I'm doing. It's very easy to contact me there. Uh, I also I have an Instagram and a Facebook page by the same name, Ancient Astrology. Fantastic. Matthew Kenny, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, thanks very much for joining us today. And we wish you a very happy, healthy, productive 2021 to come. Thanks for coming on What's Happening New Haven. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I, uh, I wish you exactly the same. Thank you. Hello, 
hello to you. You are with WPKN. We're genuinely glad you're here. This is What's Happening New Haven. And as promised, we have a special segment up next for our serious creative types out there. Hannah Cole of Sunlight Taxes is with us, and she offers many resources to help guide working artists through the realm of income tax. And as you'll soon hear, she knows how to break it all down and explain it beautifully. She's conducting a webinar series this month for those in the city of New Haven, as well as another online workshop. I believe it's on January 26th. So if you'd like more information on those dates and times, you can visit her at sunlighttax.com. What makes this even more interesting is that she's also an artist herself. Here's a bit of background about Hannah. Uh, Hannah Cole specializes in working with creative people and their businesses. Though she's worked at a couple of quote-unquote buttoned-up tax firms in New York, she loves bringing her skills to the aid of the creative world. Her passion for helping serious artists began when she was an account executive and interactive producer for a New York design agency, where she saw the struggles and triumphs from the inside. She's also a painter living in Asheville, North Carolina. She studied at both Yale and Boston universities and has exhibited internationally. She's represented by the Tracy Morgan Gallery in Asheville and Slag Gallery in New York. Her work was also shown recently at the North Carolina Museum of Art. Hannah Cole, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Our pleasure. So Hannah, tell us about your own history. You're an artist yourself. How did your own creative passions intersect with becoming a tax expert? And and please also (laughs) describe your own artistic workforce, if you would. Sure. Um, So I've been a working artist for just over 15 years. I went to get my MFA and I actually got my undergraduate degree in art history at Yale in New Haven. Um, So I came upon it really organically. I needed, as a working artist, most of your artist listeners will recognize that we make our income in a very piecemeal way at times. You know, sometimes there's like adjunct teaching, there's your own independent practice, sometimes you have a random commission, sometimes you're doing studio sales, sometimes it's sales through a gallery, um, and sometimes it's odd jobs. So figuring out how to piece all of those bits together in a, ta- in, a co- in a coherent tax return felt incredibly challenging to me. So I did my own research and talked to other accountants um, talked to accountants at that time. I wasn't an accountant originally. Um, And and I just found one that I was capable of doing that work, but also that I had such a miserable experience with other accountants because of this Mm. really intense cultural disconnect between Mm. us where Mm. they just had no idea what an artist did all day. Wow. Um, Wow. They would either think I was Picasso and like printing my own money or they thought I was some like slob living in my parents' basement and like mooching off of society. And, you know, just like there was this no sense of like just a working artist, what that looks like. Right. (laughs) And Hannah, what is it about artists? What is going on with this beautiful part of the population psychologically? Why are artists so classically overwhelmed and distressed about tracking finances and by extension preparing for tax time? Yeah, well, so I actually think I start every talk I give about this topic in this way where I debunk the artist stereotype, because to be honest, 
I just don't find it to be true. There is a stereotype out there that says we're terrible at this, we're bad at math, we're bad at details, we're bad at business, (laughs) whatever. Right. But and it gets reinforced at every, you know, Thanksgiving where you're, you know, Mm. where your funny uncle makes a comment about it. But (laughs) it's, um, you know, being an actual working artist in the world, Mm -hmm. you really have to get your stuff together. Like you cannot function in an art career if you don't have at least a very minimal baseline of being able to meet deadlines, present yourself, um, organize your you know, the elements of your business. And I think artists, um, for the most part, do things that are harder than taxes all the time. Any artist out there who's applied for a grant has done something harder than taxes. Yes. Um, So I just have found that artists are incredibly resourceful. They gather the skills they need. They share skills with each other. And that this artist stereotype, it it maybe serves a gallerist who doesn't want to treat you fairly or even professionally, but Mm. it really does not serve the artist. Mm -hmm. And so... The sooner we can all kick that stereotype out of the room, I think, the better. Mm-hmm, indeed. And I've always wondered this, Hannah, how exactly does an artist prove on their tax return that they actually are a profit-driven entity as opposed to someone with a really expensive hobby? Yeah, you're really getting at like the core issue for artists here. Um, that is the most common audit that happens to artists is over the issue of whether you are running an actual business or a hobby. Mm -hmm. Um, The tax difference being that businesses get to deduct expenses, um, whereas hobbyists do not. So um, really the IRS's definition there is one thing only. It is profit motive. You have to prove your profit motive. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, you, have, you have to have a profit motive. And what that means, interestingly, the word motive is very important there because you don't have to have a profit to have a profit motive. Ah, you have to be okay. trying to make money. Okay. Um, so I like to say, like, if you apply for a grant, that grant application proves your profit motive. If you get the grant, then you will additionally have a profit, mm-hmm, um, which mm-hmm. is great. Um, and of course, if you're the issue really is that artists don't make enough money. We want, and so a lot of the work I do with um, artists is really about mindset and about better treatment, you know, advocacy, because not having consistent profit actually puts us in this precarious position mm-hmm. where we can get called into question over the legitimacy of our business. Whereas if you actually have a profit, you don't get called on that. You know, you it's easy to prove your profit motive when you have a profit. Okay. The difficulty is when you don't have a profit, then you have to actually do some legwork and it's more risky. Gotcha. So would advertising and promotion be a good way to show serious intent to the IRS? For example, would would a social media account prove salient to, to the state or the feds? Yes. So you are really hitting on all the important things here. Yes. Um, advertising, promotion, those things are fabulous. Social media, yes. Um, you, when you're dealing with the IRS, because, you know, we don't fund them properly and it's very popular to cut their budget, you need to do everything as though you're in 1967. So it has to get, you have to be able to print it out on paper. Uh-huh. <laughs> so how you print out your social media account on paper uh, <laughs> doesn't feel like the most fun, but you can do, it can be done. But Isn't basically, yeah. Something? Yeah, wow. So you can actually print it out or uh, filing electronically? Can you take a screenshot or is that, that's, yep. Okay. Yeah, just think about how you would translate that to paper. If you could get it on a screen and print it out, that would be that would be okay. But basically, yeah, yeah, when you're spending money on things like advertising, that in and of itself is proof of a profit motive. Um, 
not that that alone will be the, you know, the end of the story. There's kind of a, a suite of this actually a nine factor test that the IRS uses to determine ah, profit motive. Okay. Um, but that is definitely high up in there. So, you know, your Squarespace account, you know, if you have a website that, that counts, um, printing promotional material, and of course, social media, your MailChimp account is another thing. You know, if you have a email you know, like a MailChimp or Active Campaign or Constant Contact. If you have one of those and you're sending stuff out, that is definitely advertising as well. And those things are all very helpful proving profit motive. And so if you are proving profit motive and you're putting out a lot of money but not making making a profit, can you write this off? So yes, with an asterisk. Um, yes, you can. It is your legal right if you have a profit motive to be able to run a loss. Um, but just to explain, if you'll let me just explain why that is both good, but sure. also a little bit dicey. Yes. Um, so uh, when you run a loss in your creative practice, it actually creates a tax shelter for you. Mm. So this is a wonderful benefit that is given to businesses deliberately so that they can weather difficult financial moments. I mean, hello, 2020, we're all having one right now. Mm. Um, you know, circumstances beyond your control, or if, you know, you had a competitor open a shop across the street, you know, ah. there are things that can happen beyond your control that could give you a terrible year. Yes. Um, so, and also it's well understood um, that, you know, your first year of business is very unlikely to be a profitable year and it is okay um, to have a loss in year one. Mm -hmm. There's even a special checkbox. Is this year one? And it's very important to check the checkbox if it is your first year in business uh -huh. okay. um, because <laughs> of the sort of special leniency. But basically the way that the loss functions, let's say, let's say I'm just opening, um, you know, I'm just starting my, my studio practice first year out of school or, um, and, and I need to pay for a studio rent deposit and some equipment to get myself set up and I'm going to buy a whole bunch of material and, and I've got a show on the books and I've got like a mailing list that I'm developing. And so I'm doing those things that show and I'm applying to grants and things that show profit motive. Mm -hmm. um, um, then I'm running a real business. And those things that show the profit motive are really important to keep and to document for seven years. Um, but let's say I spend $10,000 um, and don't have income yet for mm -hmm. that year one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can list those expenses and I can take that as a $10,000 loss. Now, what that does is it actually shelters $10,000 of other income on my tax return. Mm -hmm. So maybe I am supporting myself by teaching art at a community center or a university, or maybe I'm doing art installation work at a museum yeah, or yeah. something like that. Mm -hmm. um, then the income there, let's say I'm making, you know, $30,000 doing um, art installation, art handling at different galleries and museums, mm -hmm. that $10,000 loss, instead of paying income tax on $30,000 of income from my life, I'm going to pay income tax on $20,000. In other words, that $10,000 loss from my business yeah. gets subtracted from my other income. So I'm saving income tax on $10,000, which is a substantial boost. That is a substantial tax savings right there. And it's deliberately there on the tax code to help you get through those tough moments. The year one, the recession, the earthquake, the global pandemic. <laughs> right. So um, so the IRS has it, a heart is what you're saying. <laughs> definitely. That's definitely. Good and, to and know. Truly, yeah. yeah, truly it's a tax benefit that is there for businesses. So the issue arises 
um, when when you have a loss for multiple years, then it starts looking like, well, why are you still in business? Mm -hmm. Why are you in business if you are having a loss year after year after year? Mm -hmm. Do you really have a profit motive? Mm -hmm. And while that's a very upsetting letter to receive, like that your profit, it can feel like a questioning your legitimacy as an artist, but truly it's only about numbers. There's no judgment except for the numbers. Gotcha. Right, Um, right. The question is just, you know, is this a real business? We want to take a look. And the reason that that, um, the sort of counterpoint, the reason to sort of illustrate why this happens to artists, why artists get those letters that say, hey, do you really have a profit motive? Yeah. It's because there are some people who um, unscrupulously take advantage of that when they don't have a legitimate business. So there are people who, you know, who have a hobby, who are genuinely something else. They're a chemistry teacher. They're, a, you know, whatever, yeah, just right, any, anything right. else. And they, they know the tax rules about the hobby, about the loss. And they say, you know, if I put this on a Schedule C, then I can take all my hobby expenses and I can, you know, have it tax savings on them. They're like, I'm going to fly to Paris and I'm going to pop into the Louvre and call that a business trip because I looked at art. Um, yes. And this reminds me, <laughs> yeah, this reminds me of gr- the grant process because mm-hmm. when, when, how do they determine uh, if a particular artist truly deserves that grant? Is this a very mm-hmm. edgy, sketchy gray area that, that, um, you know, really is scrutinized heavily? Of course it would be, I imagine. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. And like I said, the most protective thing to do is to make money. <laughs> now, mm-hmm. short of making money, second best thing is to document your profit motive, document those things that prove a motive. Mm-hmm. So that can be anything from like like you mentioned, all those things, all the advertising you do, grant applications. It can be correspondence with people in a position to sell your work or to circulate your work. Um Anything you do to show that you're trying to make money is proof of a profit motive. So very helpful. And how about some other ideas, Hannah? What might an artist want to do to really separate and monitor their income and expenses? In other words, what kind of business entity might an artist create to further establish their profit profile? Sure. So anything that is business-like is protective in the sense of helping, helping you prove that profit motive. Um, Mm -hmm. you certainly want to keep books. And the first thing I advocate for everyone to do is to keep a separate bank account for the business activity. Ah, That's really important. The IRS will look at that. So if you are just running everything through your personal account, that is bad. You will, you can (laughs) get in trouble for that. Yeah, that (laughs) that makes sense. Yeah. That looks like a hobby. You know, that's you paying for a personal thing. Um, But, but what you, what you really want to do is open a separate account call that your business account you want to put deposit all your income from that activity into that account and pay all the expenses out of that account mm-hmm. it's protective both from a tax and from a liability like a legal standpoint mm-hmm. um, but it helps show that you're professional one of the things i like to say to people is all the stuff that you do in your creative practice that you hate doing is proof that you're a business so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if you don't have fun doing it then it's it's proof because hobbyists don't do the stuff they hate hobbyists don't meet with accountants or lawyers over their practice hobbyists don't um don't sit and keep books they don't bother you know tracking receipts um 
Yes. You know, they don't like struggle over their Instagram profile and their messaging and their networking. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So absolutely. Well, well said. Um, so what are maybe just a few other basic steps, just beginning steps, a new artist putting their toe in the water, how they can get their expense records and write-offs cogent and easy to reference when April rolls around? What, besides opening up that separate bank account, is there another mm -hmm. just preliminary thing a new artist sure. can do? Yeah. Sure. Well, kind of side by side with that opening a separate business bank account is one, just understanding the nature of transfers between that business and the personal account. Mm -hmm. I think that's a thing that stops a lot of people from separating them. Mm -hmm. So just to explain that really quickly. Sure. Um, you are taxed when money comes into your account, your account from outside or and you get a deduction when your money moves from your account out, like out of your own world. So um, in other words, like if it's coming from someone else's pocket into yours, it's taxable generally. Mm -hmm. And if it's going from your pocket to someone else's, then it is, you know, ta a tax taxable moment to a deduction. Mm -hmm. If you are moving money from one of your own pockets to another of your own pockets, uh -huh. that is not, not taxable. So ah, transferring okay. money in between the business and the personal account is, is um, called an equity transfer or an investment. And so it's important to know how to do that so that you are um, able to fund that account if you're not making enough profit to cover your business expenses. Mm -hmm. So you are allowed to move a chunk of money from your personal account into the business account. Mm -hmm. And you will track that in, in your bookkeeping. It's called an owner's investment. Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's basically this whole third category that exists in accounting. So I think most people think of expenses and they think of income like we sort of inherently understand those two categories but in accounting there's a third category called equity and equity is basically investment it's how much money is in the business that didn't come from the activities of the business but came from other stuff came from someone investing mm, so mm -hmm. you can invest in your own business by putting some of your personal money into that business bank account mm -hmm. and bookkeeping serves to track that so you could eventually pay yourself back for it so that's a way to know that it's okay if you don't have the money to meet the rent in year one when you're running at a loss you of course need operating funds and it's okay to use personal and the reverse of that is you are allowed to pay yourself when your business makes money um thank goodness <laughs> thank goodness exactly because who's we're not trying the goal is not to build up money in a hermetically sealed account that we're never allowed to touch i mean right. we start businesses so we can fund our life yeah but, so, yeah, um, that's great. Yeah. But you can move money the way that a freelancer, any freelancer, not just artists, um, but the way that a sole proprietor is meant to pay themselves is by doing an, a transfer from their business account into their personal account. So you do it as a transfer and it's called an equity transfer or an owner's draw when uh, you do it. And okay. that is how you pay yourself. So then out of the personal account, that's where you make the personal expenses, groceries, rent, clothing. You do not make expenses like that out of the business account. That's where you run into trouble. You should be only doing business expenses out of the business account. And what that what that does for you, part of the beauty and the gift to yourself, is that then everything coming into and going out of the business account mm -hmm. is either a business business income or a business expense. Mm -hmm. And then those owner's draws are very clearly labeled. So you're not counting those as taxable. Yes. Um, 
And then that becomes the basis for your bookkeeping. So basically, instead of combing through receipts, which is everybody's idea of hell, yeah. you you have a business, you know, you look at your, um, you know, your December bank statement, and that's what you do your bookkeeping from. Amazing. It makes your life much easier. Wow. And what a wonderful feeling it is for an artist to be able to support themselves and, and draw this money in a well-organized way. But let's talk Absolutely. quickly, Hannah, about everyone's worst fear, artists and non-artists alike. What oversight or boo-boo <laughs> might draw attention <laughs> to the creative type that would get them audited? Sure. So I think the first thing to just say is that, well, it doesn't feel good to get a letter <laughs> you're, yeah. you're under examination. Right. Um, it is the check and balance in our system, and it is not necessarily a an accusation. It okay. is genuinely a checkup. So mm -hmm. don't don't let it don't let yourself believe it means you're you know um, automatically in trouble. It is totally possible to go through an audit, prove what they're asking you to prove, and come away with what's called a no-change audit, where essentially they say, you did nothing wrong. Nice. You're great. <laughs> Free pass. Go on your merry way. Yes. Um, yeah. So that's good That's good to know. It is not an accusation. It's a checkup. Mm -hmm. um, if it happens, um, it's important to know that the timing is very critical. So you have a 30 day window from the date of the letter to respond. Mm -hmm. And if you don't respond in that window, you lose. So mm. um, sitting on it, the sort of head in the sand approach does not work. In fact, will damage you dearly. So you could lose something that if you'd proven it, you know, if you if you'd responded, you would have won. Um, you can lose just by virtue of not responding in a time frame. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a little <laughs> right. Yeah. That's a little scary. Yes. But the way the way that um the way that returns get flagged, I think is pretty interesting. Okay. Basically, you put a little code on your schedule C, which is, you know, the part of your income tax return where you're reporting self-employed income. Mm -hmm. Um there's a little code called a NIAX code, and it identifies what field you're in. So pretty much everyone listening to this here, except for maybe a couple of photographers and printmakers, mm -hmm. are going to be under the code called independent writers, artists, and performers. Mm -hmm. so it's a broad code, um, but there's a code for everything you can think of across every career in the U.S. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And basically, the IRS does these algorithms based on knowing data from every single taxpayer. Mm -hmm including historical. And so they know what a person in that code, you know, another writer or performer or artist in your zip code uh -huh. at your level of income, they know what the outer range of supplies expenses are for that okay. kind of person. Okay. They know okay. what the outer range for meals is. They know yeah. the outer range for travel. So they have these data comparisons. Mm -hmm. And if your numbers are within the normal range, usually nothing will happen if your numbers stick out above the normal range yes. then you can get a flag and right. so you go into this pool of returns that have flags on them yeah, now all audits are what's that always going to say too many dinners at the rainbow room <laughs> that's an yeah. expense <laughs> that can do it <laughs> that could definitely do it Hannah, you have such a great website, loads of resources and support. And I think when any artist of any sort who's feeling overwhelmed with their tax profile visits your website, they feel an immediate sense of relief. Could you please share a flyover of what you offer to a new, perhaps slightly freaked out client? 
So I offer um, courses. I offer um, a spreadsheet bookkeeping system called No Fear Taxes. Um, and my sort of flagship program is a holistic education. It's like a year-long membership where I teach all the things you need to know, both immediately to save money on your taxes, but also more holistic, like here's how tax shelters work. Here's how to build your retirement savings with less money than you thought. Um, mm-hmm. Things like that. So um, that program is called Money Bootcamp. Um, and that is the thing I'm the most proud of and put the most focus into. And I have um, a cohort of artists in that every year. And it's really wonderful because it kind of gives you all the skills you need to really have a financially empowered career. Fantastic. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. And um, we'd love to hear uh, the time and date of your late January webinar launching, kicking off the new year. Where can they find this information online? And also maybe take a peek, see at your art, just all your online information, if you would share that before we wrap things up. Sure, my pleasure. Um, so my own art you can see at hannacole.net. Um, you can also see at my gallery in North Carolina, the Tracy Morgan Gallery. Mm. Um, I actually, the current show I curated. So a little bit of my own work is in it, but it's mostly a group of other artists. It's a show about um, race and weeds. I know that's sort of funny. They're both things that don't have a scientific definition. They're more of a judgment. So I, I made a show about that. So oh, you can see cool. that at the Tracy Morgan Gallery. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, I'm really, I'm proud of that show. It's felt really good putting that together. Excellent. Excellent. And, yeah. and um, Sunlight Taxes, did you give the address? Just Sunlight Taxes? Um, it's sunlighttax.com. Oh, sunlighttax.com. Perfect. Yes, I've yeah. been there. I just couldn't remember right off the bat. Um, so thank you, Hannah Cole of sunlighttax.com for joining us today. And I encourage listeners to check out Hannah Cole's artwork as well. And that is at hannahcole.com. Is that right? Hannahcole.net. .net. Super. Yeah. And we wish yeah. you the very best of luck with your artistic pursuits and your amazing skills and un- unique support for other artists in the tax realm. And it's been a wonderful way to kick off 2021. Hannah Cole, having you with us today. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so, so much for having me, Bonnie. I really appreciate it. Have an amazing year ahead. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been the January edition of What's Happening New Haven. I'm Bonnie Likes here with engineer Sean Bigler, and you are with the ever-beneficent WPKN. We're looking very forward to coming back right here on WPKN every first Monday of the month at high noon. Till next time, we wish you a super smooth start to 2021. Stay and be well.
big brother. Think of me as the good shepherd keeping an eye on my flock. Sleepwalking, daydreaming, obsequious holograms, dancing with our shopping carts. Those innocuous, comforting cuts from compilations without a jolt of innovation, cause innovation wakes us up, breaks it up, makes thinking question. We're dancing just for the kick, just for the kick. Just for the kids.